podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Director Tiffany Mara as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan's Center for the Education of Women Plus in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. Today's podcast features Kate Fitzpatrick Harnish, who will be presented with the Carol Hollins Head Inspire Award for Excellence in Promoting Equity and Social Change at CEW's 2020 Advocacy Symposium. Dr. Fitzpatrick Harnish is an Associate Professor of Music Education and Acting Associate Dean of Undergraduate Academic Affairs for the School of Music, Theater, and Dance at the University of Michigan. Her research focuses on the experiences of those who have been historically marginalized in music education. Kate, if you wouldn't mind, can you please introduce yourself and what drives you to work towards social change? Yes, thank you so much, Tiffany, for having me. I am really happy to be here to talk about my work and feel just very honored to receive this award. I want to thank you and the Center for the Education of Women Plus for presenting this. This really means a lot to me. I, as you mentioned, do work to explore issues of marginalization and inequity within our education, particularly for me within music education. I've done studies that examine the experiences of music teachers in large urban districts like Chicago, studies that explore issues such as how we can make our music classrooms more culturally responsive and sustaining, how issues of academic performance and instrumental music participation intersect, especially for students who receive free and reduced lunch in schools, and overall issues related to arts equity, particularly in large urban school districts in the U.S. I also began a series of studies a few years back that examined the experiences of women who are mothers in traditionally male-dominated fields, such as high school band directing and the professoriate. So in general, I have been just really concerned with making sure that the field of music education and arts education represents a wide variety of perspectives and also is inclusive and equitable to different populations, particularly those who have been historically marginalized. To introduce myself just personally, I grew up in Toledo, Ohio, which is not that far from U of M and from Ann Arbor. So coming back to Michigan was really like coming home for me and being close to my family, which was important to me. I had an amazing childhood growing up in Toledo. But as I reflect back on my journey, a lot I think of what I value and what has driven me to make sure that I'm doing work that relates to social change is embedded in my own childhood and values that are there from my extended family who experienced a lot of poverty and disability and rather challenging situations for my parents. And those messages of, you know, being grateful and being thankful and making sure that to those who much is given, much is expected. I have always just felt that it is my responsibility in certain ways to make sure that my life work has a contribution to greater good. And I look back at that and I'm just very grateful for those particular values and experience in my childhood. I am a trumpet player and that's how I got into music. I started playing trumpet in fifth grade and just loved it and fell in love with music. I think when I look back now, being a little bit detached from that identity as a practicing musician as I'm so much in my academic work now, I just recognize the value that the arts play in everyone's lives, whether people are formally involved in music and the arts in institutional structures such as schools or whether they are, you know, turning on music in their car on the drive home or singing in their shower or being musical or acting and lovers of film and 
all of these other ways that we participate in the arts. That enlightened me as a, a kid growing up and as a teenager. And so I loved being involved in everything musical, musical theater and bands and orchestras and all sorts of different ways in jazz also. So I decided to go to college for music education and to be a music teacher. And again, that kind of fit with something that was important to me, something that I wanted to do. When I graduated from undergraduate experience as a music educator, I took a job that really profoundly shaped the rest of my career. And that was a job teaching high school instrumental music at Northland High School in Columbus, Ohio. And Columbus is a large urban district at the time. You know, there were constant press stories being done about issues of academic failure in the Columbus City Schools. And when I took that job, I remember lots of people saying things to me like, you know, make sure you lock your doors and make sure you're escorted out to your car at night. And that really bothered me. It really bothered me that that's what people thought of my students and my school as a very young teacher. And so some of my formative experiences in education were recognizing the stereotypes that are there for many of our schools that are under-resourced and underserved, and also of our students, and many ways that racism is woven into those structures and those expectations as well. So as a white teacher teaching students of color, I think that I had a lot of learning to do and that journey to better understanding my students and who they were, and also really deeply understanding the lack of resources that they had in comparison to my own upbringing in arts programs. That really shook me to my core. And so through the years teaching at that high school, I began to notice some really tremendous issues of inequity. For example, the program where I taught, we had a budget for our instrumental music program, which was a rather large one in the schools at that time. Our budget was zero from the schools. We were not provided any money to fund music, sheet music. We had to fundraise for everything we were given. We had to beg for money from the Pepsi machine to get new chairs for our students. And the parents and the students I worked with fundraised almost every weekend so that we could do big, wonderful things. We went on trips every two years. We made CDs at the time. We tried to do some things that were important, but we didn't have the resources that a school down the street would have. My kids, who, again, would work all weekend and would take the bus an hour after school to get to my rehearsals when they were also providing childcare for their siblings and working jobs to actually help contribute to their family's grocery budget. My students, who were just absolute exemplification of everything that is good about the world, my kids weren't offered those same opportunities. And I saw how much music and the arts meant to them. And I'm really proud of the work that we did there. But as I eventually really reluctantly left that position because I adored my students so very much, it was a hard decision to make. But to go into academia, the reason I did so was because I felt like their story wasn't being carried in music education or the arts and that most of what was happening in the broader professional discourse really centered around those from well-resourced school districts who serve predominantly white students. And those were the discourses that were happening. And I felt that it was really important to examine that. I started teaching in 1999. At that time, there was one published research article in music education 
about students from what we then called an urban district. In a broader educational research, we had been looking at issues of marginalization for a long time. So our field was really behind, and that drove me to do this kind of research. That's why I went on to do my PhD and subsequent work in academia. But I try to make sure that all of the work that I do is centered around actually remembering faces and stories and experiences with my kids. And I still call them my kids, and they're you know, many of them are teachers themselves in the same district now, and they're all living their lives. And we do stay in touch because we had a profound connection. And I never want being a part of the scholarly community to take my focus off the reason for this work. And the reason for this work is that my kids at Northland matter and their our education experience mattered. So I keep that in mind all the time. So I went on to the University of Louisville as a college band director there and also someone who worked in music education and landed at Michigan in 2008, and here I am. That's excellent. When you look back over your career, I'd have to imagine there's some tension between the direct service to students versus academic work where it's much more theoretical and you don't get to see the joy on students' faces. Can you talk a little bit about how you manage that balance? And you talked about how you remember the students of the past do you continue to work directly with students in urban communities? Yes. As a matter of fact, that's kind of a promise I made to myself when I entered academia. I mean, I think everyone talks about the ivory tower and, you know, we kind of don't want to get lost in those spaces, you know, lose our connection to actual matters that really affect people. And I do believe that great scholarly work can bridge that divide. We need to understand the world and the research we do is really important in so many different realms. But for me personally, I made a commitment to making sure that I was still involved going into classrooms and going into you know, actual music classrooms where kids were there making music. And so for a long time, I always volunteered my service to go in and listen to bands who are playing. That's my particular area of expertise and to do some guest conducting and judging and making sure that I'm really close to understanding those experiences. I think the the focus shifts from being someone who's doing that work to someone who is listening and trying to maintain connections and relationships that help to foster and support that work. So if I don't maintain those connections within the broader profession, I'm not sure that I would know exactly how to center my scholarly work. So the decisions we make as scholars, I think, are grounded in what's actually happening socially, right? What's actually happening in the world. And so for me as an arts educator, that's important because the world is changing so quickly. Being an educator myself, having taught in K through 12, you kind of see how inequity early in life causes ripples later. I was wondering if you've seen how inequity early in life may play out at U of M with students who are entering SMTD. I think we're particularly grappling with issues like that within the SMPD and within the broader community of higher education in the arts. Right now, I think what we're recognizing more and more, and we hope to draw more attention to this, but the fact that there are such profound issues of inequity with regards to access to arts education within our communities of color when children are young really leads to a lot of the issues that we're having in higher ed. So let's be really clear. Communities of color are really the driving force of artistic and social change in our country. And so for the arts, what an amazing location of what's happening 
our communities of color are where Black American music, for example, is one of the great riches of this, the world's musical history and tradition. Mm-hmm. And so our communities are themselves uh, richly experiencing the arts in many different ways. But the ways that education is provided are not always centered in underserved communities within schools. Black churches, for example, and other centers of community, musical and artistic expression are really working in our communities to make sure that students have access to music and to the arts and to a wonderful and rich education. But in our schools, traditionally, we have a path that is is really problematic. It's highly problematic. So we are in in most underserved communities, you will not see the same type of access to music and the other arts when students are in elementary school, for example. So general music is something that we see in almost all well-resourced schools, systematic, well-resourced, well-funded program of general music from the time children are very young. They're within their schools, which we're in a democratic society, and our schools are a part of the ways we express our values of how access to education should be implemented, right? So our schools are the structures that we provide to all children. And general music is not provided for all children in elementary schools. So if you go to a school that's well-resourced, you're going to have weekly, bi-weekly, maybe even more contact with a music teacher specialist who's been well-educated in helping you get a wonderful and diverse array of experiences within your school day. And if you go into an underserved district, such as the one that I taught in, you're not going to see those same experiences. And you're going to see many times, you know, no general music. For example, in Chicago, that was very common that there was no general music being provided to elementary school students, or it was subject to the individual discretion of the principal rather than something that was provided throughout the district. So walking down the street from one school in one district to another school in another district, you've got kids who are experiencing much different institutional provision of arts education within schools. I think the issue is that when we go up through the years, when we look up through the pipeline into higher education, that access is compounded, right? So if I'm wanting to play the violin, let's say, and I need to play the violin in very specific ways to be accepted into any program of higher education. If I want to be a music teacher and I'm a violinist, I have to pass an audition requirement at the college level to be accepted in the first place. And those auditions are very competitive and they are very focused on a very narrow set of audition requirements and repertoire that are profoundly based in the Western classical canon, right? So mm-hmm. I need probably to be able to compete successfully at institutions such as U of M to start playing the violin maybe between ages of four and eight wow. um, in ways that would not be provided to me in most schools. So my parents will need to have resources outside of schools to pay for private lessons weekly. My parents will have to buy a rather expensive instrument. They will have to have access to a teacher. And so those types of things happen from a very young age. So what happens is that then you go into a high school like the one where I taught. I taught orchestra in addition to band. And I have some amazing students who decide at the high school level, hey, maybe I want to be a high school music teacher. Maybe I want to be an elementary music teacher. I play the violin. I've been playing it for a couple of years in school. I'm ready to take private lessons. Maybe we get them a grant even to take private lessons. They're still not going to be able to compete with regards to the traditional expectations of institutions of higher education to be a music teacher. So we have these problematic points of access for people to even become an arts 
educator in the first place. And again, they're, they're very based on the Western art canon. And so there are issues that we're having to really untangle now, not only about how we better support arts education from a young age for all of our students, but also about how we take a look at those points of access in our collegiate experiences and undergraduate and graduate education to broaden that, right? I mean, someone could be the most outstanding gospel vocalist that you've ever heard, or someone could be an incredible musician and play the drum and not read music. And that person, although they could be, you know, in popular culture, they could be one of the greatest musicians we know, they would not be able to get in to our programs of music education. So how do we re-examine those points? How do we diversify classical music and the arts especially within institutions, to make sure that we are not upholding structures that promote inequity. And wow, it's a challenging task for us, but this is the moment, I think, where those conversations are really happening on those campuses, and I'm excited for them. It sounds like this is a very tangled systemic web of challenges, so it's not only access to arts education, music education early on, it's what's considered an acceptable canon. It's access to the instruments that cost a lot of money and how poverty plays into that, and in particular communities. It's the difference between community music, popular music, and what's expected when you get to higher education. I mean, the number of factors that go into this are just overwhelming. Like, where do you start? The issue is that we're at a place and a point in time, the momentum that is here now, I think, is forcing institutions to change, right, and is forcing everyone to take a look. But it has to be at all points, right? I don't think that we can just look at this in higher education. And, and I think higher education is one of our most challenging points to examine because we're looking at our own structures, right? I keep thinking about the fact that everyone who's really successful in higher education is there because they have successfully navigated the system in place, right? Mm-hmm. So we oftentimes work to preserve those systems for which we are the victors, right? And it's hard for us to imagine other systems that we haven't personally engaged with. So there's that protective factor that we really need to untangle and get beyond. I am hopeful, even though it's a challenge, I am hopeful that we can do it. I know here at U of M, we've got some amazing leaders who are really on the vanguard of pushing for this right now. And so there's some really exciting things, I think, happening as much as there are challenges. But that's why, again, we can't just look at that in isolation. We can't just look at, you know, the state of classical music or the art in isolation as they exist in professional organizations also. We have to really look at arts education as it's provided through our schools also. You know, we have to make sure that there is equity of access. I think about it all the time, the idea that there are some kids that we deem have the right to experience beauty and creativity and all things wonderful about our human selves, the fact that we say there's some kids that, yes, you deserve to have that as a part of your education, and then there are other kids that we functionally say you don't deserve that. That really bothers me, right? It's not that every kid should learn the arts because they're going to go to college and they're going to become professional musicians or artists or actors or anything else. It's that the arts are who we are, right, as human beings. The arts are something that every human being has as a part of their experience because it's what we do as humans. And so, again, we have to get away, I think, from thinking of the arts as belonging to a certain group of people who are educated enough to participate in them, right? And we have to remember that the arts 
are something that I guarantee everyone listening to this podcast participates in every single day in ways I discussed earlier. Right now, there's this magical, beautiful device that human beings can carry around in their pocket or in their car where they have access to almost the entire world's history of music, right? And um, never before have we had access to that type of variety of artistic expression and understanding. I can watch Broadway musicals. I can, you know, watch theater and I can look at visual art. And there's so many ways that I as an individual can now access the arts, no matter my background. And so this is a time where arts equity matters. We have to look at how we're incorporating them into schools and how we're making sure that every kid has an opportunity to experience beauty and art and to find themselves within their school days. We have a constant running narrative, I think, in broader society is this idea that came up many years ago of, you know, music makes you smarter and what's the relationship of, you know, the arts or music in particular or specific trainings on your brain and how you do in math and how you do in reading and, you know, and I've done a little bit of research on that and many others in my field and in the broader field have done a lot deeper work in that area. And there are certainly some things that are fascinating about that and the the connection of arts with neurological changes. And there's some evidence that there are some benefits with those points, but there's other complications to that too that I won't get into now. But the real truth is that the arts had nothing to do with any of those things. Would we still want them? right? Would they Mm -hmm. still be of value to our kids? And overwhelmingly, parents want their kids to experience the arts. I'm not sure that it's because they want their kids to score higher on tests. It's because the arts are part of what we do as human beings. And I want to make sure that that's a part of that conversation, that kids deserve that experience because they're kids and they're human. And there should be a place in their schools and their institutions and their communities and their lives for them to create and to feel and perhaps never more so than right now with everything that's going on with COVID. Yeah, for sure. It's become a coping mechanism for many of us. You know, when you look back over your career, which has been quite amazing, from classroom teacher to band director to, you know, now faculty at University of Michigan and pushing the field of music, education, and equity, are there time points that you look back on that you're particularly proud of? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Teaching at Northland, It's a time I will always be proud of because, you know, regardless of what else has happened in my career since, I've never before had that type of connection with people for whom I felt such responsibility and care and deep professional relationship with as my students. And so I carry that very close to me. I mean, we went through things that were incredibly hard. I lost a student that was very close to me. We went through a lot of things together, and so I will always say that that is the time I am most proud of professionally. I will say, too, another particular point in my career that I'm really proud of, I think a lot of other people are starting to really recognize in academia how challenging it is for many women who have children to navigate the academy. And so I will say that having two children while on the tenure track for me is something I'm really proud of or has been really profound to me. It has really led me, I think, to, again, some of the other research that I'm doing. I just completed a study just now of women in the music academy across the country who are mothers, and I'm doing that with a colleague, a brilliant colleague at the University of Illinois, and I'm grateful that that led me to a further area of research because I think it's something we really need to take a look at. And again, the pandemic is only heightening 
those tensions for many women, but those issues of gender that play out with regards to parenthood, especially in the academy, are things that I am very thoughtful of. And something else that really is profound to me or that I've really appreciated about my journey is seeing the success of my former students and their journeys from here at U of M. You know, so many people who were student teachers at U of M within our program that we get to see start out in the field and, you know, go out and make a difference in the lives of so many other students out there. My former graduate students, I mean, what an absolute honor to be able to mentor graduate students who are out there in the world right now making such a difference. And that's my master's and my PhD students. They're just remarkable and incredible. And I continually reflect on how fortunate I am to be able to learn from them and to be able to see their journeys and all of that. I'm just really immensely proud of them. So those are a few moments that stand out to me. Huge impact on the individual and the societal level. That's amazing. Later in the academic year, you'll be presenting a workshop What do you hope attendees will take away from that workshop? Yeah, thank you. I'm really excited to do that. I think it'll be wonderful to have people together. And I think what I hope is to do a couple things. And one of them is just to get all the attendees maybe focused on the role of arts in their own lives and get off for a point in time for them to reflect on that or to consider their relationship with the arts and to remind them that they don't have to be what we used to call, and we really hate this word now, but talented. People grasp onto that word, and I really don't like that word at all. I want people to find in their own selves their connection with the art, wherever they're at, and however it is fulfilling to them and their life and their spirit and who they are. So we'll spend a little bit of time on that. I'm going to challenge the attendees to really think about their own journey for ways that they can call out inequity and marginalization in their own lives, right? And how particularly those of us who are not of color, and particularly for my white colleagues as well, to really examine our position when it's really important for us in situations of inequity to take risks that our colleagues of color can't or that communities of color can't because they're embedded within those systems that are actively discriminating against them. When it's appropriate for us to take those risks because we can using our privilege and when it's also important to decenter ourselves and to listen and to make sure that we step back because the conversations and decisions about where movements are headed need to be led by those who fully understand them and who have the knowledge to lead us forward. I'd like to talk about that dynamic as well and how we white colleagues can navigate that to better support our colleagues and our students of color. Yeah, those are wonderful thoughts. Kate, thank you so much for partaking in this podcast. I thoroughly look forward to attending your workshop and learning from you. Thank you so much, Tiffany. Thank you for listening to CEW's podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. To learn more about this episode or the services and virtual programming offered by CEW+, please visit cew.umich.edu. Here at CEW+, we navigate circumstantial barriers by providing academic, financial, and professional support to help you reach your personal potential. Established to support women through higher education, we lift up women and all underserved communities at the University of Michigan and beyond. Through career and education counseling, funding, workshops, events, and a diverse, welcoming community, we exist to empower. We are CEW+, and we are here to help you reach your potential. The University of Michigan resides on the traditional territories of the three fires peoples, the Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi.